open our hearts and minds by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we may hear your word with joy. Amen. The first scripture reading today, um, you can follow along, is Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5, and verses 15 through 16. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame in your righteousness. Deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. My times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hands of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading today is from John chapter 14, 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you, also, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not... Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. We've been talking this Easter season about how we can be light in the world. How can we spread the exciting news of freedom in Jesus through his resurrection? We saw Mary learn that in our most troubling times, we have to stop looking for a dead God sealed up in a tomb, but turn around and see the living face of Jesus standing right behind us. We saw the group of disciples learn that nobody's going to believe their good news if they just sit around scared in a locked room. We saw two traveling disciples learn that Jesus is found when we display generous hospitality. In all of those narratives, we see those who have encountered Jesus in unexpected places go run and tell others about what they've seen. In all of those narratives, we've seen the importance of relationships. This is a key theme throughout the entire Gospel of John. Our relationship with Jesus our relationship with other Christians, our relationship with the world around us. Now, in today's passage, Jesus doesn't show up anywhere unexpected. In fact, he's exactly where the disciples expect him to be, because we've actually time-traveled a bit and gone backwards, back before Jesus' death. In fact, this passage is part of his long farewell to the disciples before his death and resurrection. He is saying goodbye to them, even though they don't know it yet. The disciples are still pretty innocent at this point in the narrative. They haven't gone through the horror of watching their teacher and friend flogged, made to wear thorns on his head. They haven't yet realized that when he said he would have to leave them, he meant he was leaving them via a brutal death at the hands of a corrupt government. The disciples have no idea what is about to actually happen to Jesus or to them. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. And yet he tells them not to worry. He tells them not to be troubled because he is leaving in order to prepare the family home for them. The rooms that Jesus is talking about here are not bedrooms like we have in our houses. They're more like sections of one giant house. And not like a mansion giant house, like we might think of, but a house for a whole extended family to live in. Often when we hear the phrase house with many rooms, we jump straight toward mansion. But that's a misinterpretation of this passage that stems out of the culture we live in. The traditional Hebrew houses that Jesus was talking about grew with the family. The larger the family, the larger the house. There were separate sections for each part of the family that were all still attached. The most similar thing that we would have today would be a duplex or row houses. Only instead of each of them belonging to a different family, the entire extended family lived together under one roof. When a daughter got married, she would go off to live with her husband's family in their house, called the house of the father. When a son got married, he would build a new section onto the house for he and his new wife to start their family in. And so on and so on, and the house grew. This passage is often and appropriately used as a funeral text 
because it's a reminder of what resurrection means for us. Both Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection that we can all look forward to ourselves in Jesus. But it can also be used as a wedding text. The church is often referred to as the bride of Christ. And this passage shows us one way in which Jesus treats his people as a bride, preparing a dwelling place for us in his father's house, bringing us into the family in a significant and permanent way. This passage is not about rewards, it's about family. It's not about riches, but relationship. It's so much better than something you might see on lifestyles of the rich and famous, or for the younger set, cribs. This is a holy family reunion that is reflected now by Jesus' followers, and which never ends. Jesus knows the pain and the emptiness and the sorrow that the disciples are about to go through, and he's sort of pre-comforting them so they know exactly what his death is about. While none of us were there to know exactly the pain that Jesus' death caused the disciples, there is no shortage of loss and pain in the world around us. Just a few months ago, I went to the funeral of a sweet friend who died suddenly not long before her 40th birthday. She left behind a doting husband and two really awesome kids. Another good friend, a mom of four little kids, and one of the sweetest, most Christ-like people I know is battling cancer right now. She's winning, but she's still fighting. I see firsthand on a weekly basis the injustice in our criminal justice system and the lack of support our culture gives to ex-offenders. Anytime my adopted black son is pulled over in his car, I say a prayer of thanks that he only got a ticket or a warning. Anytime I hear of an incident or fire in our city, my stomach lurches until I know all the police officers and firefighters in my life are safe. I've watched beloved friends and family members fall prey to drug addiction. I know personally the pain and loss that are felt after escaping a physically abusive marriage and the loneliness of trying to raise a baby alone in a world that looks down on single parents. And that's just in my short little 38 years. Others have had it much worse than I have. Others have walked through many years more. I try to read the news every day when I have the stomach for it. I try to make that a prayer exercise. I read the news and pray for the places and the people that I read about. But there is only so much war and genocide and injustice and murder that one person can take in before feeling pretty empty. In the course of my day, I regularly drive past homeless folks who I wish I could do more for than hand them a bag of snacks and gloves. I hear about women who've been released from the jail only to overdose a few weeks later because of lack of support. We've all lost loved ones close to us, something that can be especially painful when everyone is celebrating Mother's Day. I'm fortunate that my mother is still alive and driving me crazy. And while I faced the potential loss of a child, that kid beat the odds. Right around the same time, a friend of mine lost a baby to stillbirth at full term. There's just so much yuck out there, and it's around us. It's around every one of us. Nobody is immune to the loss and the loneliness and the sorrow that this world has to offer. And it is important for us as Christians to name that. 
Yes, some of us have been spared from it more than others, but we all carry it around with us. With that reminder of all the yuck in the world, all that sin and hardship and loss and sorrow fresh on our minds, perhaps we can begin to see what Jesus was preparing his disciples for. And so let us return to this promise that Jesus leaves with them before his death. Don't let this throw you. You trust God, don't you? Trust me. There is plenty of room for you in my father's home. If that weren't so, would I have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? And if I'm on my way to get your room ready, I'll come back and get you so you can live where I live. And you already know the road I'm taking. We are not children of this broken world, my friends. We are children of God. We are children of God who says that we are not part of this world. No matter how lonely or hurt or homeless we feel in this world, we are so beloved that Jesus is building onto his family home for us so that we never have to be lonely or homeless again. This doesn't mean that we are suddenly immune to the hurt of the world, but it does mean that we are no longer under control of the hurt of the world. It doesn't rule us anymore. And this means a few things for the way that we move around day to day. First of all, it means that we have to live like we believe we are part of God's family. Like the psalmist, we are to commit our whole being to God, not just part of ourselves or the easy parts to let go of or part of a week. Let everything we do be for God, not just the churchy stuff or the holy stuff, but when you sleep, sweep your floor, sweep it as an act of service and love to the people around you so that God might be glorified in that act. When you clean out cupboards in the church kitchen, clean them out like it matters for the kingdom of God. When you talk about how your day went, find the places God showed up in your day and share them. Share them with your family with your coworkers, Share them during the joys and concerns at the beginning of the service. There is no God moment too small to share with us here. There might be big, giant, holy goosebumps kind of God moments in your day, or they might be so little tiny that you have to pay attention to even notice them for what they are. But they're always there. In fact, more often than not, they are the latter, so you have to pay attention. To live like those who know they are God's children, we have to set aside the world's lies about us that hold us back. Shame, self-doubt, guilt, apathy, self-pity. Instead, we embrace the identity of those whom Jesus has prepared a place for in the family home. Freedom, confidence, passion, energy, and gratitude. Second, this reminds us that our comfort and well-being is intimately tied to that of others. In my house, and I'm sure in yours as well, if one family member is hurting or angry or sad, it affects every single one of us. One grumpy kid can make a whole house full of people grumpy in no time flat. 
And if one family member has a triumph, we all shout for joy with them. And yet, as a culture, as a society, and often as a church, we fail to realize that the pain and the sorrow and the injustice that is heaped on other people affects our well-being as a whole in the larger world as well. And it's not just the sorrow and the pain of the other person that is lessened in our reaching out in God's love. In our connection with others around us, other members of this family, we find comfort from our own sin and pain and sorrow. And finally, it means that we have to live like we believe everyone around us is a part of God's family. Only Jesus knows which of the people around us have a dwelling space in the family home. So it is our business to assume that everyone around us does, whether we like it or not. Or perhaps I should say whether we like them or not. Not a single one of us can end all of the pain around us in the world. But we can reach out and let those in pain know that they are beloved. Not just by God, but by God's whole family. One person at a time is how we make a difference in the world around us. The pain of the world, sin, loses its grip a little bit when a bottle of water and a sandwich are given to a homeless man on the corner. Sin has to back away when an ex-offender is welcomed into a church or a workplace as an equal and valued member of society. Sorrow is edged out a bit in a visit to someone lonely and homebound. When we say we will pray for someone in a difficult time, our prayers matter, both spoken and acted on. My friends, we are all called to this house that God has prepared, this family house in which many generations join together in life. So let's choose today to live like it, to live against the sorrow in the world. Amen.